Hi, this is Dr. Bruce Wexler. I'm happy to be here from my uh, office in New Haven, where I'm a professor at Yale University. I'm going to be a speaker at the sixth annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University in early April. And you're listening to Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Lori Russell Chapin. I come from Peoria, Illinois, Bradley University. Dr. Wexler, that you just talked to, is coming to Bradley University to be our guest speaker at the Super Brain Summit, April 8th. This is our sixth annual Super Brain Summit and our 30th alumni event. And we'd love to have you join us. And I'm so excited to be with these fine people at the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, Tech with Santiago Brand, and neurofeedback legend Jake Unkelman. Our goal is to provide information, promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast and more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have very special guests. Dr. Bruce Wexler is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and senior research scientist at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Neurocognitive Research Laboratory at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. For 35 years of neuroscience research, he has advanced the understanding of brain plasticity, has been an international leader in developing computer-presented brain exercises, treat cognitive deficits, and people with psychiatric illnesses. Dr. Lori will be leading the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University, and Dr. Wexler will be speaking. But before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Hey, the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit this April 8th at Bradley University featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler. He's a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He'll discuss neurotherapeutics and how we can regulate the brain with computers. Register at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. I hear they got a brain exhibit there, a really big one. I've got to check it out. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wexler. Hi, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Pete, for that nice introduction. This when be- the screen turns on and we see the eye patch, I know it's going to be a good show. This will be the, uh, the first time I've traveled since the uh, pandemic, and I'm excited about seeing people and giving uh, lectures uh, face-to-face with an audience, um, and of course, also look forward to people joining online. And um, I'm also very happy to be part of this particular series, uh, the sixth of the Super Brain Summit, because of who the previous speakers have been. And I was impressed, I have to say, that uh, Dr. Russell Chapman has organized these so effectively for a number of years and brought on board people from all over the country who are really leading scientists. And so I was honored, I am honored, you know, to be invited. And it's also nice to be able to give four lectures, because then you can really go into depth on brain that we're talking about the brain and that's what you all work with obviously too you know like hello it's pretty complex if you want to have share thoughts that really can get to deeper understanding and broader understanding you need both how the brain is shaped and how it works you need time and too often speakers aren't given enough time 
Now, you all have triggered this memory process. I remember being invited out to Hawaii to give a keynote address. It's the only time I went to Hawaii, and it's a very, very long trip. And I only went because I, it was in a conference that I, I, I liked the, the nature of the group. And then they wanted me to come out there for a half-hour lecture. It was <laughs> like I you know, was able to persuade them for a little more time. But this is much more to my liking. Make a trip. Spend time with people who are serious about learning something meaningful. I'm confident that there will be some useful and new ideas for people who come to the conference. Dr. Russell Chapman has invited me to make uh, at least some comments related to the impact of the digital world on on our brain development, the uh, impact of the pandemic on brain health, how we can actually understand better some of the challenges, that, why, why the pandemic produced the mental health challenges it has, and then maybe even to talk some about, no, not maybe, I will be talking some about conflict uh, between peoples who are different from each other by cultural and political boundaries. And unfortunately, it's sad to say, you know, that's incredibly relevant today. Um, so yeah. we're going to start from the most basic neuroscience principles to establish a foundation in which we can then approach some very complicated social issues. Your work on cultural and social uh, impacts and neurology uh, was seminal. Uh, Thank you. you know, go, go back and look for people before you that published in that area. Good luck. You know, um, <laughs> Thank uh, you for uh, saying that, yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. for breaking that glass ceiling um, yeah. because uh, – uh, yeah, you know, everybody assumes that the EEG is culturally neutral, and it generally is, but it it doesn't mean that neuroscience is. And uh, we're we're quite fortunate to have uh, you looking at that uh, interaction. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Doctor Wexler. Yeah. At Yale, they have a neuroscience program. Do they teach neurofeedback there? What What's the setup over at Yale? Well, the setup at Yale is that there are a lot of different departments. So there's a, 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 a big neuroscience part that is not clinical uh, to start with. It foundationally is more basic science, basic neuroscience, but it does bridge into some clinical work. And I have collaborated with some people there over the years. There is surprisingly little EEG work actually being done at Yale now. Um, quantitative EEG, which I think is very interesting. The nice thing about, one of the nice things about quantitative EEG is that it's looking at the brain as a whole system, and it's using, um, it can use uh, very sophisticated modeling techniques to analyze what's going on. It's looking at the brain as, as a system. It can look, it has the potential to identify interactions in that system of different components and it is not a reductionist model of disease, which thinks that it, uh, dysfunction is related to one physical location in the brain. And uh, so I, I say all that because that's not the approach that I've been surrounded with primarily at Yale. Yeah. The psychiatry department has been one that's more focused on, has been more focused on medications and then by... Yeah association focused on brain function only at the synapse level of two cells together or intracellular process 
you know, uh, there used to be a sign on the door going into one of the labs on, on, called molecular psychiatry, so meaning that they were actually looking at what's going on inside individual cells. And the key thing about our brains is the way they work is at the systems level, and it has to do with what's called an emergent property, which is says that um, functional properties emerge from combinations of things that don't exist in individual pieces by themselves. And so if you take the reductionist science model, which has its value, and you say, oh, we want to know how this works, let's take it apart. You've lost the thing you're trying to measure. Yeah. And the irony about it, Pete, is that the most basic thing of life, water, is a primary example of emergent properties. The properties of water do not exist in hydrogen by itself or oxygen by itself, and only in their combination. And so, you know, that's such an obvious fact. But when we get into talking about complicated situations, uh, systems, which are too hard for us to understand, we tend to try and break them apart and look in little pieces. And it's just a big cost to that. The reason I asked the question, Doctor, is we got a bunch of smart people here. We have a couple of great brands here in Bradley and Yale. In order for more people to get into neurofeedback, schools have to teach it. Yeah. Not a lot of the schools even give an acknowledgement to it. How do we get it into more schools? Do you, what does the future look like? Just only go to Bradley? But I see here on the screen of one of our uh, co-presenters a very interesting announcement of a master's program in neurocounseling. I have not heard of that before. Can we hear Dr. Me? Laura, what is the screen that you have on? Well, this is from the Bradley website, and Laura oh. can talk more about it, but this is the program. Could you maybe just give us a little bit about the impact of the digital world on neurocognitive functioning? I mean, we, we are trying to talk about it as much as we can, and I know Laura and I try to bring it up with our clients slash patients that we're meeting with for the neuropsych evals, but could you just maybe you let know, us know where, where your research... I, I, yeah. I will say this is... I'm, I'm not an expert in all aspects of this particular question because some uh, one aspect of it is things like screen time. What's the effect of screen time? I, I'm wondering if you're getting at, at that sort of concern. That's a, you know, a, a, clinic, a more directly clinical issue. What's the effect of uh, having less face-to-face -face social contact with people because you're, it's mediated electronically? Um, what I'm going to comment on is more the fact that our brains are shaped by experience in the world, not only humans, but all mammals but more so for humans than any other animal. Those physical, physical structure shaped as well as the function. But the, and the unique thing about people, though, is that we shape the environment that shapes our brains. No other animal does that. And that's what we call cultural evolution. And it actually took over from biological evolution in advancing development of human cognitive capacities. Children now are raised almost entirely in a human-made environment. And this leads then to transgenerational shaping of human brain function because uh, one generation creates the environment that was not nature-given or God-given born onto the earth. This was a constructed human environment that shapes the brain of their children. 
And when their children grow up and have control in the world, they're shaping the environment and it changes transgenerationally. So the digital world has impacted that in very significant ways, um, which I hadn't anticipated actually. You know, when I wrote the, the book, Jay, I had a different idea about how the digital world might impact it. But now the children are raised in an electronic world and in virtual reality. You now that's another thing that you may be having more contact with. So how extreme could the change be, you know, from uh, trees and lakes and mountains that were born into in the natural world to a virtual reality that you can share? It doesn't never existed anywhere and is created, um, you know, by, the, by people. And then people will compete. And what are their motives in, in shaping that virtual reality experience? The ones who then try and, you know, we can just say, make money may be part of it, but that could be, you know, they wonder what is the motivation that's then going to be shaping the brains. The other thing that has, I've become more aware of is that it used to be if people had some unusual opinions, they were sort of moderated, their opinions and their behavior controlled by people in their community, their family, their teachers, their religious leaders their friends, because they would say, oh, you know, you know, why do you really believe that? Or, you know, you can't act that way. You can't say those things. Now people with those beliefs can find whole communities in the digital world who have the same beliefs, and they're in an echo chamber, and they've lost the moderating effect on that uh, opinion formation. And then I think you can see the consequences. So it's those sort of things that I'll be talking about after laying the foundation for the fact that our brains are shaped by the environment, as I said, and that we uniquely shape the environment, and all that seems cool for quite a while because we were able to really do some things like writing and reading and things like that, you know, but now it's you wonder uh, about what the impact's going to be. And it'll be an impact, for sure, and we won't have control over it, for sure. I mean, famously... <clears throat> Socrates was said to have objected to writing when it was first introduced because it would, it would reduce people's memory capacity. And so <clears throat> he was right about that, reducing the memory capacity. But in terms of, we would have to say, the use of external memory devices and information transfer by writing and the fact that Plato could write and wrote down what Socrates said. Um, I think we don't, we're quite comfortable with that now. I, I, uh, I'm just not sure whether I'm just being old-fashioned by being uncomfortable about what could go on in the digital and virtual reality world. So I bought myself an Occupy virtual reality thing to at least try it out some and see what's going on. And uh, I haven't had much time with it yet. But anyway, that's, that's the sort of thing, Skip, that I'm uniquely or unusually qualified to comment on the empirical data of what the screen time do to kids' you know, attention span. Uh, but certainly it, it, it could, and certainly the digital experience. But one more thing about screen time is that people have said, oh, so much screen time, so much screen time. And we do these digital neurotherapies. They involve screen time. My answer around screen time, well, it depends on what they're doing in part, in large part, on the screen. If you said to me, oh, my child is spending three hours a day reading the classic books on Kindle, you know, that screen time is destroying their brain. 
I say, that's not the issue. It's not the screen. You know, it's what you're doing on it. So it's the video games and the content that you're doing on it, not screen time per se. And that's often blurred over in some of the studies I've seen because they can't measure that so well. So they try and assess in their research how much screen time did each person have, these children have, and divide them in groups, not what was going on on the screen. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's take a break in the Thank action you. here. Yeah, let's take a break in the action to tell you about the Super Brain Summit at Bradley University. You can check it out online at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. It's happening this April 8th. Featured speaker will be Dr. Bruce Wexler, an international expert on digital neurotherapeutics, and he's a psychiatrist at Yale School of Medicine. Hey, visit the Brain Cave, walk through the brain using Oculus Quest. How cool. Check it out April 8th, bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. All right, we're going to break the internet here. Bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit, or you can call 309-677-3903, 309-677-3903, or email G-H is in Harry, O-W-A-R-T-E-R at Bradley.edu. G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at Bradley.edu. Okay, that's your halftime read. In case anybody's spotting us. Yeah. All right, continue. <laughs> Laurie, you should, Laurie, you should, Laurie, you should fund uh, more quantitative EEG studies. They don't cost nearly as much as fMRI studies, and more informative, and more informative, in my opinion. I'm somebody who who did years of fMRI research. Yeah, I was fortunate enough that one of my good friends and colleagues, a physicist, had been at Bell Labs, and his the guy next to him invented fMRI. We did the studies with the New York Times coming up to, you know, write the first papers because you could actually see activity in parts of the brain when people were thinking, stimuli going in, no action or behavior, just thinking. I mean, it was pretty exciting. And then when you spent more time on it, you realized um, there were limitations in what it could really inform you about. And I think the quantitative EG is a more agile, potentially sensitive method. Well, certainly less intrusive. And also a key thing is that you can repeat it. Well, you tell me, you all know more about it, but you can repeat it under different circumstances, situations, right? Is it always in a resting situation or do you do it in different types of provocation? Yeah, and, and in fact, the EEG, QEG can be applied in lots of different circumstances, very much like fMRI. I mean, the right. tasks that you give somebody in an fMRI is only limited by your imagination, you know. So, right. um, but but the fMRI smears time, and that yeah. that kind of loses the dynamics of the EEG. Unfortunately, the the two paired together end up being much better than either alone. Uh, the the fMRI has the specificity of spatial very nicely but uh, the the resolution of time is not good eg is great on time not so great on spatial resolution so uh, the two to go really well together and um, uh, th those that end up having the luxury of a budget um, uh, end up having the the uh, the glory of being able to play with all these tools um, luckily um, the EEG QEG is inexpensive. Um, uh, the The cost of doing one is the cost, the, the amortized piece of the device that you're using, which isn't going to be much. Uh, they used to be a lot more expensive. 
Uh, they're, they're awfully cheap now, uh, and supplies and the tech time. So, that, you know, a few hundred bucks and you've got a full study and uh, in yeah, an fMRI. You don't, you don't even have one fMRI subject. I know. It's a, you've got an order of magnitude difference there, you know. Um, uh, a couple of thousand dollars, you, you've got the physicist to play with the images and the the the, the time in the tube and everything. So it, it's it, it's it, it's extremely difficult. Now, the application of EG or fMRI to consciousness ends up being kind of a, a reductionist approach, but it's it's better than not looking. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I have to say that. The reduction approach to EEG separated the infralow frequency slow components, which were studied in Europe uh, with neurofeedback in the 60s and 70s uh, to to good effect. But they threw away the oscillatory EEG, only looking at the slow. We threw away the slow content as artifact, looking only at the oscillatory EEG. Until you put the very fast gamma and the very slow infralow frequencies together, you can't predict consciousness. But when you mate them up, the the bispectral index basically can predict your depth of consciousness effectively enough so you can do surgery with it. So, uh, uh, but you've got to look at both. You you can't split like the Europeans putting on the blinders to not see the the stuff off to the side and only looking at their topic. The same thing here. We just use different blinders to look at a different section of the spectrum. But you've got to look at the full spectrum to be able to see consciousness. And uh, but once you do, it's it's really a, a glorious view. That so. sounds that, that's so interesting. So the other advantage of the quantitative EEG is that you can do many different conditions in the same people. Yep. Well, an fMRI study not only does it cost so much, you might do two different activation tasks. That's you know you might ask yeah. them to uh, to read you know, nonsense syllables and read words. And then that's your whole your whole thing. You yeah. can do so many variations, and that's you know what because our nervous systems dynamically reconfigure. I mean, like letters in an alphabet um, to produce different functions. And so, like an analogy I use is if you have three letters T, E, and A. In one way, you put them together, and you have T. You put them another way together, the same element, you have E. You put another way together, mm-hmm. you have eight. You put an M in front of eight, and you have mate. You put an M on the front of end of T, and you have team, meaning it does a whole different function. Instead of yeah. t- expressing T, it expresses team just by adding another component to it. And so, you know, doing two, two conditions in an fMRI with its poor time resolution, and, I, you know, it has better spatial resolution than some things, but... What's the spatial resolution you need? And how do you decide to, um, we don't know, we don't know. And we don't know how do you define the the functional units uh, anatomically within your fMRI. There's so many uh, challenges. So, uh, Pete, you can cut out all that technical. No, you're good. You're good. That's that's the good parts. (laughs) Dr. Laura? I had a a question, uh, Dr. Wexler. Um, so one of the sessions you're going to be giving at Bradley at the Super Brain Summit um, involves digital neurotherapy for ADHD and depression. Yeah. And then you also you know, mentioned the, uh, the brain brightening. 
So just to be clear, that's the first time, to be honest, that I've heard the phrase, have it phrased that way, digital neurotherapy. Can you explain uh, what that means? Are we yeah. talking about neurofeedback or what do we mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I made up the phrase, and the first paper I used it in was just published uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, <clears throat> before, this used to be called cognitive, cognitive Computerized Cognitive Remediation Therapy, Neuroenhancement Therapy, it had all different names. Uh, but the idea is this. It goes back to what I said earlier, that our brains are shaped by sensory input. That's the neuroplasticity part. That's how I said our structure uh, after birth, the structure and function of our brains are shaped by environmental input. Where does that environmental input come from? It comes in through the eyes and ears and touch too. For example, if you walk around the corner and you're trying to decide whether the object confronting you is a bear or a small delivery van, how do you make that distinction? Only on the basis of the pattern of light going into your eye after reflecting across off the objects. There's nothing else. There's nothing else you have but that pattern of light going into your eyes. And if it happens to be a bear, it activates very different neural systems than if it's a delivery truck, right? And let's say it's a mother and a child, a little girl, and the difference is that an ice cream truck or a FedEx truck coming around, the, or Amazon truck coming around the corner. They're going to be host factors that make a very big difference, you know? The ice cream truck's going to light up certain parts of the little girl's brain, and the uh, Amazon truck's going to light up other parts of the other person's brain. So in digital neurotherapy, first thing we do is we need to identify where is the dysfunction at the systems level, the highest level of organization in the brain, because that's what supports cognition and emotion. We don't care if we have an extra copy of a gene or if we have um, a few plaques in our brain unless it disrupts the function of these higher level neurosystems that influence the way we think and feel and function in the world. That's what makes a clinical disease, not something that happens at the lower level. The clinical disease is what disrupts these systems functions. So we need to repair the systems functions. Now, when you think about how uh, different types of treatments that people use, uh, biologic or brain treatments, neurofeedback is one. But let's look at medications. They're operating at a very low level, at the synapse level. And they go all over the brain to parts of the brain that have problems and parts that don't have problems. So they're not very specific. Then you see, what do these other people do? They'll put an electrical wire on your skull to send electricity through your skull into your brain to try and fix it, a dysfunction at some sort of systems level. What about the eyes and ears? That's what we have. That's what goes in with a whole lot of control. That's what shaped the neurosystems to start with. And so in digital neurotherapy, we first target, identify a neurosystem target that's dysfunctional. And we know what they are in depression and ADHD, schizophrenia, we know a lot of this. You identify the target. You wanna produce activity-dependent enhancement of that functioning. So how do you activate that system? Well, instead of a bear or a delivery truck, we have very fine control over the nature of the stimuli that we present, like put in to look like a computer game. But we can control the stimuli, and we can control 
the processing requirements, the demands we make of the people in response to the stimuli, so we can activate with a great deal of specificity and individualize from different patients the, the activation we do through this digital neurotherapy. All this stuff is great. When are we going to have adoption of it? What's holding it up? You can leave now, uh, Dr. Oh, Wexler. That's an important question. It's a critically important question. But I'll tell you what, everybody who's listening who wants to know the answer to that question, what should they do, Pete? What should they do? <laughs> Go to the Super Brain Summit April 8th at Bradley University. There Register a- now. That, that is the key question. Why is it not adopted further? I had, I'll t- I mean, I actually had an uh, op-ed in the Financial Times of London about why, uh, about the, about the fact that the pandemic created a lot of problems at a scale higher, you know, more population level than we have had to face. How did we respond to it in terms of the vaccines? It was based on decades of government-funded research that then was applied to the problem. We've had decades of research producing digital neurotherapies, but there's nobody who's saying we should use this at this point at scale, you know, with a, with government uh, support in order to address what is a mental health problem from the pandemic. It's a great question, Pete. Neurofeedback has shown it, it, it can be have a positive influence. When will we see it in every uh, assisted living, you know, nursing home? When will we see it? Uh, at high schools, grade schools, for the counselors to use, uh, the, the the prisons, the halfway houses. Uh, I think we got to keep talking, and we need more lobbyists. What do you think, Jay? Well, neurofeedback is morphing as we speak, so it's not a static entity, um, and it's not taught at university levels to psychiatry, psychology students in a general way. If it were taught today in the graduate programs and people that graduated with that knowledge had fully absorbed everything that they could have absorbed, uh, they're going to go into practice as a junior partner in some practice. They can't do what they want to do. They have to do what's being done and what they're authorized to do. It would take about five years for them to become a big enough partner so they could actually do what they felt like doing. Um, it's going to take a few years of being in school programs and then about five more years to get general penetration into the market. Just right now, if the population knew about neurofeedback, the people that are doing it couldn't possibly serve the market. Uh, So to a certain extent, we're, we're somewhat lucky that it isn't generally known because we couldn't serve the market well now already. We need to penetrate the university programs so that it's being taught at a high level, and only then will it really start to penetrate practice. It, it's unfortunate that it's so difficult, but, you know, uh, if you're a psychologist or a counselor and you want to get into neurofeedback and you have somebody who actually tells you what you're about to step into, you know, it's going to be expensive, it's going to be time-consuming, uh, but if 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 it's something that you find joy in learning, it's the right learning curve to be on. Uh, It's extremely powerful. Uh, It's a shame that it's not been taught for decades in schools. In the U.S., it had the 
reputation of being a bunch of hippies, and I have to apologize for some of that reputation. Um, yeah, it's, that was us in the early days, and probably a bit still, you know. Um, uh, but uh, uh, things have changed. Unfortunately, the founders of the field are falling away. Joe Camilla uh, passed uh, about a year or so ago. Uh, Barry Sturman's not doing well um, with his Parkinson's, and it, it's uh, fairly advanced at this point. He, he had to cancel doing a talk at APB next week. And uh, he, those two plus Burbomber in Germany were the founders of the the application of neurofeedback. So there's only really one of the three founders that's still, you know, able to present and participate. Um, so the the field has advanced tremendously. We've got solid efficacy support for ADD, uh, for epilepsy, uh, the, the affective disorders, the literature on autism is coming together, but it's still kind of spotty. Uh, the outcomes are good clinically. Uh, the, the clinical people precede the researchers. Um, uh, so we, we've got a lot of applications that are still having the support for the application kind of pieced together. Uh, it, it, we're creating the efficacy literature as we're riding the bicycle we're reconstructing, you know. Um, uh, but it, 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 we're, it, we're presentable uh, for some applications already. For ADD, the literature is really solid. Um, there's still people that don't read the literature, you know, the, uh, uh, if, if you hand them a paper, they wouldn't necessarily read it unless they were interested in it. But uh, our, our field is really quite respectable for ADD. And for epilepsy, it's as good as or better than neurology is doing. So um, I, I, I think we we will penetrate into general practice. Um but it's we're, we're probably a decade out. It's got to penetrate universities and then the market. So there's a um, a neurofeedback advocacy project, and that is the website. So www.neurofeedbackadvocacyproject.com, and it's a few folks, a couple folks, and they have right now I think three agencies that they have going in Oregon that are collecting data on the efficacy of neurofeedback. And what these folks are also doing, not necessarily the folks at the three sites, but the folks that have this advocacy project going, are allowing um, folks access and, and you know, counseling, if you will, air quotes, right, on how to set up similar projects in your area, how to contact local officials, how to contact local agencies. And, and they kind of give you a template to get something like this going. Obviously, funding is an issue. So there's some, again, air quote counseling around that process. All that to say, just wanted to give everybody an FYI that this group's out there. But I think the answer then, Pete, is grassroots, right? And it's not, you know, these big sweeping changes that would be nice, um, especially if you're impatient. Like grassroots you're isn't organized, though. It's been grassroots right. since the early 70s. But now it's grassroots with some backup and a template and a framework of, hey, here's how we've infiltrated, maybe too aggressive of a word there, our local uh, community so that we can, uh, one, access folks that might benefit from these services, but then, as I think everybody here knows, as importantly, collect the data 
and get it to the people that that will impact, meaning local officials. Hey, there's this stuff. You might not have heard about it for a gazillion reasons that we've talked about on this show, but this stuff works. Can we get some more funding? Because look what it did in the schools. Look what it did with folks that just got out of prison and the recidivism rate within this group has you know shrunken, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're getting toward the end of the show, but I'm going to come back with, and Jay saw the example of this earlier in the week. He sees it all the time. Well, show me the studies. Yeah. How many studies are out there? <laughs> you know, if we could organize them all, we, we got tons of studies, but there isn't one that people look at and say, oh, yeah. That, yeah. Right? The, for for ADD, ADHD, are, I, I provided you the, the what's, what's called a brief, uh, which yeah. is actually more of a legal term. Uh, and it's basically it was a, a compilation of uh, studies and uh, a, 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 an executive cover letter. Uh, but they basically go through the ADD literature and the traditional complaints of, um, you know, is the effect long lived or just short term? Um, what's the efficacy uh, quality literature out there? They, they point to the meta analysis literature and quote quite a bit of it. But they're as a as a paper uh, that is adequate to refute anybody that's an open-minded critic or open-minded skeptic as long as they're open-minded that paper is absolutely going to answer every question they have with solid published research and current uh, published research so uh, it's possible to hand something like that to uh, an open-minded skeptical physician uh, or counselor or psychologist and have them read it if they're open-minded. Uh, a lot of the people I consult with, I offer a free consult with the psychiatrist that may be considering treatment if they're open-minded. If they don't want to hear about EEG, it's a waste of time. Uh, but if they're open-minded, I'm happy to spend an hour discussing the EG, QEG, so they understand why we're recommending a specific medication or a specific treatment. And, you know, as, as much as we know about uh, psychiatry, uh, we, we really don't know uh, the depth of uh, uh, diagnostics, really. Uh, uh, depression isn't a serotonin deficit. It's not just left frontal alpha. There it's a very complicated circumstance and TMS practitioners can point a magnet left frontally as a, a based on the DSM complaint of intractable depression, but they don't always get a good outcome. If you actually look at what the brain is doing before you point that $250,000 magnet at it, um, you end up with positive outcomes uh, at a much higher rate. Uh, not everybody's left frontal alpha. You could be right frontal beta and have the same absolute imbalance frontally. So uh, we've got a long ways to go before the individual's data ends up helping to determine their personalized approach with, you know, foundationally effective treatments, uh, but personalized medicine. We, we, you know, everybody's got a very unique EEG, and their EEG does guide interventions quite accurately if you pay attention to it. But psychiatry has traditionally thought of EEG as a way to identify epilepsy and gross encephalopathies, but not diagnostically for, is this depression or bipolar or, 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 um, differential diagnostics, EEG is not where they turn. And that's a shame 
because it's the organ of consciousness. It's what they're treating with their medication. Um, it, it, if, if they actually looked before they treated, they'd have better outcomes. If there's an open-minded physician, uh, a neuro person out there that's uh, trying to understand what is the difference between an fMRI and a QEEG, the pluses and minuses, why would they choose a QEEG over a fMRI? I'll hang up and listen for my answer. Thank you. So I, I would look at neuroimaging as more than just fMRI. Uh, you've got PET and SPEC scans as well. They're metabolic. Uh, you have, actually have to inject a radioactive tracer of either glucose or oxygen. And at that point, you, you see where the radioactivity is taken up in the brain by function. Uh, but it's after-the-fact function, and it, it doesn't really differentiate very well. You can see frontal lobe hypoperfusion with spec scan, uh, not enough of the tracers taken up in the front. You kind of expected more, and the brain's not, it's idling, so it didn't take up much tracer. Well, the fact that it didn't t- take up much tracer could be theta, could be slow alpha, could be alpha. And those three require totally different medication interventions. So spec scan gives you good deep brain identification that QEG doesn't really get very well, uh, but it doesn't do time well. I mean, you, you inject a tracer across time, looking for absorption across time. So there's no instantaneous, you know, sensitive to intervention. Uh, uh, fMRI is a little faster than that, but not a lot. Um, it, it's five to 10 seconds quite commonly. Um, and that smears time. When, you, when the EG looks at things millisecond by millisecond by millisecond, 10 seconds is a long time. Um, and, and the smearing of time uh, uh, is how they identify, well, they, they look for the default mode network, which is identified in, in, in fMRI. Well, there's actually four pieces of different pieces, totally separate pieces that flip-flop between the four pieces and when you when you slow them down into the time domain of an fMRI, it looks like the brain isn't doing anything. It's a resting state, uh, posterior to the left, right, and anterior midline. And the the posterior to the left, posterior to the right, posterior to the front, and posterior all by itself end up being four separate pieces that flip flop between each other about every 82 to 84 milliseconds. So when you get 10 seconds of time, you don't see the dynamics. The brain's not at rest. It's twiddling its thumbs. There's still activity going on uh, in the resting state. It's not idled. It's not truly a resting state network. It's four networks that are twiddling their thumbs between the networks during your at-rest condition. You're resting but ready. That resting state can be totally turned off in an instant uh, by some anterior cingulate uh, uh, detection of something relevant. Uh, uh, Pain is relevant. Uh, It's extremely relevant. It's the most relevant stimulus you have at the moment. If the anterior cingulate, which is the the distress network in pain, uh, is the anterior cingulate, if that lights up, you instantly turn off your default mode. You're no longer at rest. You're, you're engaged into the executive network. So uh, the, the, the networks end up 
flip-flopping very rapidly. Uh, the, the fMRI kind of freezes them in time across a chunk of time. Uh, we, we can see accurately the localization with fMRI. We can't see the function accurately with it. It smears time. Uh, EEG is great at time, not great at spatial resolution. EEG is cheap. fMRI is expensive. Spec scans really expensive and full of radiation. That ionizing kind of radiation that's damaging, not the magnetic twitch of the of the fMRI, which is not damaging. Um, if you have a radio, if, if you have a contrast media like Magnavist injected, there's problems with that. So uh, uh, it, it's not totally benign in an fMRI, but it's 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 not as uh, potentially hazardous as uh, injecting actual radioactivity. Now, the spec scan people will wince at the comment. Um, their radioactivity has got a really short half-life. Uh, it's not really, really, really bad. It's not like plutonium or polonium or uh, the toxic stuff they give to Russian spies or something. You know, no, 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 no. It's a very short half-life. Uh, uh, they have to make it within a day or so of it being used. It, it degrades so fast. So uh, the, the radioactivity isn't as bad as some things. Uh, CT scan radioactivity is probably at least as hazardous as, as a, a spec scan. <laughs> Dr. Wexler, thank you. Yeah. Yale University. Thank you. We'll see you in April. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Register now at eegstrategies.com slash course hyphen neuro. And of course, check out the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit this April 8th at Bradley University featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler. He's a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He will discuss neurotherapeutics. How can we regulate the brain with computers? Register at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. If you have an idea for a podcast uh, guest or topic, please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. We'll leave us a voicemail in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. And, of course, hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. They don't get better coverage anywhere, do they, Pete? Oh, absolutely. And on there, I think you'll find an hour with DJ Gunkelman and the rest of the panel for a Q&A. Get on there now. Cue the music. Mm-hmm.